0: What is the structure of careers and the conditions of labor in the field of communication and media studies in Germany? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Pablo Portenche in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif al-Thani chair in communication. Together with Mora Matassi, Doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am thrilled to have with us today Dr. Pablo Portenche. Pablo is Junior Professor of Communication Studies and Information Society in Ibero-America at the Heidelberg University Center for Ibero-American Studies in Germany. He has been in that position since 2021. Before then, he was Head of the Research Group on Digital Citizenship. citizenship at the Weizenbaum Institute for the Network Society and postdoc at the Freie Universitat in Berlin, working with Professor Dr. Martin Emmer. And before that, he was postdoc at the Department of Communication and Media Research at the University of Zurich, uh, working for the Chair of Media and Politics, Professor Otfried Jaren. He obtained his PhD at the University of Dusseldorf in Communication Science In 2015, with a dissertation entitled Follow Up Communication as Media Effect The Impact of Relevance and Quality Indicators of Media Content on Conversational Behavior, supervised by Professor Dr. Christian Eilders. Pablo is an expert on three main areas of research digital hate speech and disinformation, digital citizenship, and digital media effects, and has author many publications in multiple languages on these topics. Pablo, welcome to this episode of El Café Latinx.
1: Thank you so much, Pablo and Maura, um, for having me. I'm really excited to be part of this uh, Café Latinx uh, series and podcast.
0: Yeah. And I'm looking
1: forward to our conversation.
0: Excellent. So am I, my friend. So, so tell us. How did it all begin for you? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? Um, I had to think a bit about
1: this question. Obviously it's not um, easy, but um, to get one point um, in my history that maybe sparked my attention towards academia, it was probably in the zeros uh, in the year 2000s uh, back at my first master's. I have two masters. The first one was on business administration and market research with just a few courses on communication. So I started a bit from another perspective. Um, So, but it turned out that it was not exactly what I wanted. Um, So I really struggled with everything uh, economical. Uh, Don't ask me why actually chose the studies. Um, Of course, I had in mind to then move to communications. But um, back in the time, I was not super happy with the concepts from economy and so on. But then, um, when entering into student assistant jobs, I had the impression that uh, quantitative data analysis was quite required. And at that time, I acquired skills uh, with SPSS. So I had some skills in that um, also Maybe I was also among uh, very few uh, who had the skills and I also had fun doing so. So I applied to some student assistant jobs back at the time. And yeah, I had uh, a variety of jobs. So for example, I worked for engineers who were interested about HR questions. So wanted to have a 360 um, degree feedback um, in their uh, company structure. Totally not my field, but at the end, what I find uh, curiosity in was to answer questions that are able to answer with, let's say, closed questions, uh, standardized questions. And I found that really accessible for me um, to, let's say with a defined, very defined um, set, on theoretical model, I didn't think really about theories that time, but a really limited set of of variables to answer bigger questions that can tell you something that is more beyond that the relationship of age and income, but even can tell you something about attitudes of someone. So my curiosity was sparked at that moment. So I followed that road um, and um, wanted to know more. I Uh, applied for an internship and did an internship at a renowned institute called INFAS in Bonn in Germany. So they were famous in the 60s doing the first, um, let's say, social science uh, research, as, for example, Gallup in the 20s. So this uh, was a bit later in Germany after the war. INFAS was one of the lead uh, institutes here. So my interest in academia increased and... um, Finally, when I did my master thesis um, in this first master's, I did it uh, um, on the topic of uh, readerships, readership of a newspaper, of a small um, small reach uh, newspaper and a small area in, in, in Germany. But and, and it was, as it was an economical um, study, um, it was uh, paid, it was paid work. It was part of an internship, and it had the idea also to answer some, um, let's say, target group oriented questions, which were not really my interest. But I found that I could do even more with the data I uh, collected, which I could um, 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 uh, deliberately design as I wanted. So I answered actually more than I was required to just because... I had fun playing with the variables and doing clusters. So I played around and found uh, curiosity. Um, And at that point, when writing my first master thesis, I began with the idea of following, um, yeah, to, to do a master in communication and to pursue a PhD in communication because that was kind of the field that the literature that I read at that time sparked most curiosity in me.
0: Yeah. And that's fascinating. So so the transition from business and statistics to communication. um, How did you choose um, which program to attend and how is in general for our listeners who might not be entirely familiar? How's the structure of the communication sciences field in Germany? Um, The
1: first one, We kind have an. Let's begin with it. Um, systematically, communication um, science as um, um, as a masters or as a uh, bachelors um, is a quite limited. Um, uh, let's say there, there are not many um, um, positions for students, or how you say it, um, vac- mm-hmm. vacatures. Yeah, like um,
0: vacancies. Mm-hmm
1: vacancies. Um, So um, in order to allocate well, um, the universities apply kind of a key. So the key is according to the grade, which now is open, but back in time it was quite um, it was was quite high. Um I don't know the correspondency with um, US grades, but at that time it was very high. So when I began with my master's in business administration, I actually wanted to study communication, but my grade after my A, my my, I'd say my high school was not good enough to enter communication. So um after concluding my first master's I then um fulfilled the requirements for doing a master's in communication. So I looked for um, a communication um, 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 study that, um, yeah, sparked my interest. And it was, back at the time, was a small uh, university called um, Ilmenau University of um, 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 Technology um, that had... Um, that allowed people also coming from other fields to study communication that didn't require a full bachelor's in communication before. So back at the time, I think there were like two universities or three that were um that had such a policy. And I opted for this one because it had an bilingual master, so it, it had, had courses in English and in, in German. Um, and found it, and it was a new one. So I thought, yeah, why not trying it there? Um, that on the one hand side, and the other hand side of uh, your question was more systematic. I think you asked how um, the communication um, as a field, or let's say uh, the communication studies, is organized. Can you specify which kind of organization you mean?
0: Yes. So in the US right um there is a clear distinction between the undergraduate uh, education in communication and for the most part doctoral education. Graduate studies in communication that are at the master's level are fewer from between and are more on the professional um, um, education side. you take one or two years of classes and then you go work in a corporation rather than, Um, you know, move towards a professor type job. Right. So, um, Germany has a long and distinguished tradition in communication studies with a very sort of um, well established publishing scene in German. So how's the trajectory from undergraduate to masters to PhD? Um, How many positions in the PhD are compensated versus not compensated? And um, question that will come later, because you you, you had several years of postdoctoral positions until you became a professor, which is not so common in the US, but I know it's very common in Germany and uh, in other parts of Europe. So if you could talk a little bit about that and also the relationship between the national labor and intellectual market and the global right, mm-hmm. uh, the national labor and intellectual market.
1: Okay, um, thanks for clarifying. Um, the um, I think at the undergraduate and graduate level, we have uh, uh, copied the US model at the end. We kind of stick to an elder model, which led to a diploma, which would correspond to a master's now, um, until let's say the late 2000s, but now there's, there are all, all universities are offering this undergraded and graded structure in communication. Most of the universities that offer undergraduate studies in communication also offer graded studies in communication. Um, I wouldn't say that most universities offer communication studies. Um, I have no clear number, but I would suspect that one third of German universities offer communication studies um so it's um not like one of the mainstream um studies you would uh, uh, study like sociology or political science or law um but it's not exotic at all as well the um, demand is high and universities um yeah have a lot of attention when it comes to um, new students, uh, and they see that the demand is rather growing than declining um, as in humanities, for example. So this is something principally good for us because um, what we observe then now in the PhD level is that more and more PhD positions um, are out there. vacancies out out there. Some speak of kind of an inflation um, on on the PhD market. So if I would be now in the PhD market, maybe not now, now, but like 2019 before Corona, because Corona changed everything. um, This was quite quite a paradise for PhD applicants. Um, You could easily um, choose the location that you want, um, uh, want to pursue your PhD. Back in the time when I began, that was not at all the situation. Um, I can remember that uh, when I began my idea to pursuing a PhD and having it more concretely, I mean, I didn't really clearly know how to pursue it. So I had to talk with some peers or build a smaller network. But when I then began my PhD, it was not like you would open up every month a new position in PhD, how it was like in 2019. So I think the market extended considerably, um, which is also not only the attention and the demand by the student side, but it's also um, driven by third-party funding. So like the NSF the, in the US, the German um, um, Research um, foundation, the D- DFG, um, spends more money, like than in let's say, fifteen years for communication as a field, but also for interdisciplinary studies where or projects where communication has something to say. Uh, so there are more and more larger projects where our perspective is needed. So this creates new positions for PhDs and thus thus the market uh, extends. Um, The PhD system is, I guess, a bit different than in the US as you um, also implicitly said. Um, We have a lot um, of um, PhD students that are not only in their role as PhD student, but at the same time, they are faculty members. So they work at the chairs, for example, for communication at the University of Düsseldorf, as I did, um, have um, a lot of responsibility in terms of teaching, or have a mix of a bit of teaching and a lot of research. That's what I did, for example. So while I did my PhD, I may, uh, often had courses to teach, I would say one or two uh, seminars per year. Um, Besides my research that I had to conduct, um, which I could got paid for, so I didn't get a scholarship, I didn't apply for one, but I applied for a position that um, granted me with income and the possibility to work in a project where one, I would work and answer a question that was in the hands of my chair, which of course I had influence to answer as well and curiosity and interest. And two, um, I could also conduct my own PhD um, research. So in some cases, if you think about um, f- efficient uh, working efficiently, you would match both interests. So you would conduct research with him or her chair And this at the same time is your PhD um, um, research. In my case, um, yeah, call it inefficient or not, uh, but I like to just develop my own research question and to answer it, but with the tools and with the um, infrastructure that was there provided by my position. So that cost me for sure one additional year, um, but I don't regret it at all because um, I developed and answer my own research question. and I'm very grateful to Christiane Alders for yeah, for that time and also for her um, openness to allowing such an additional perspective to grow because I think without that freedom, I also would have kind of not having that drive into communication and this fun and this, yeah, let's say also, stamina to keep on this uh, work that is um yeah that um, that requires
0: all capacities you have absolutely so so quickly you said before that you could have you know gotten a scholarship but you preferred um uh, this other employment contract is it different in terms of compensation how much you are paid or um uh, so so it's like being a Quasi, quasi, sort of junior professor salary, but without uh, the security of being a professor. How does it work? Um, well, mm, the incentive
1: of um, applying for such an, I call it PhD project position. Mm-hmm. How I had it, I have not a clear name for it. Um, has it has two sides. The first side was that um, I kind of. Um, I talked with people before it, and my impression was the closer your connection is with your uh, potential supervisor, the better for your PhD and the better also for the development of your career. And people like that told me that you could have such a development when uh, you would pursue such a PhD project position um, and not to apply uh, for a scholarship. Because um, cases of PhD students applying for a scholarship, um, I don't say that it turns out as an unsatisfactory experience. Not at all. I don't know many cases, but I know experiences, very good experiences. But the thing is that um, such PhD positions are not depending, or let's say the. Um, the success of such PhDs um, are not um, um, on. How do I say are not part of the of the bigger aims of the chair where you are applying to. So, such PhD positions for um, scholarships can conduct very very heterogeneous questions that your chair is kind of just a bit interested in. Of course, the chair will be interested about the success let's say binary words, success or not. But I think this gray zone is not very pronounced. And I think for the closer you the aims of your PhD and the, the aims of the chair meet, the better also for the development of your own career. And that was kind of, for me, the reason to apply for such a project position. Um, and the other reason is of course that, um, I knew that I would be also part of the faculty and had something to say. Um, um, I could influence organization. um, I could influence uh, teaching curricula. um, I could freely do uh, uh, and conduct classes and courses from the very beginning of my PhD. And this would hardly be possible if just, let's say, just being a PhD um student with a scholarship that the faculties would rather see a
0: bit as an annex to them very interesting and so you you pursue your doctoral studies this way you successfully defend your dissertation in november 2015 and then for about six years you had a couple of postdoctoral positions um, how did you go about securing those postdocs? One was actually outside of Germany. The first one was in Zurich. Um, how is the labor market um, um, for communication pieces scholars in Germany, perhaps in, in all of uh, continental Europe, um, you know, dependent or not on the postdoctoral system? Um.
1: Well, some say that the postdoctoral um, time is the best time in your academic life. I don't know, I guess in the US is maybe something similar. I don't know, maybe you should ask uh, answer that better. Um, so it is at the same time um, after the relief of having finished your PhD, also a bit of time of to question your work, I think so, and um, to check the market and whether what you can offer fits to the market, because the circumstances change from leaving the PhD position. So I think this is a global concern of all postdocs uh, globally, at least my, my suspicion. And um, this was a risky game. So back at time, actually, my first postdoc position was not in Zurich. This was my second one. My first one was in Dusseldorf, where I did my PhD, but it was a very small period. So it was a period of, let's say, a year, um, um, where it was not clear whether I would get a consecutive position in Dusseldorf. So to be um, very transparent. Um, the perspective that I had like in the month of February was that in April, I would get a position with half the salary. So this was kind of the um, the fear of, um, yeah, having a problem with my existence actually in that time. So um, call me naive or not, but I still thought at that time that uh, in, I would make it some way. So, of course, I applied to several positions, and it turned out, um, lucky enough, that Zurich and Otto Jan invited me and I joined his chair. Uh, but it could have turned also a bit um, into a negative direction. That was an, uh, a bit of a turning point in my career, uh, or a point that did not finally turn into a turning point, uh, luckily, um, where everything went well, but also where um let's say the direction of my career was not fully in my hands um yeah let's say so and um in general would say the the job uh, market for postdocs is not bad um is for, for for sure better than for professors uh so there's kind of a pyramid um so from a lot of phd positions few postdoc positions and yeah the top, um, just a very few professor positions. Um, but I think if you have kind of a track record, if you have published a bit during your PhD, which is not only your dissertation project, you have very good chances to get um, a postdoc position um, after year one of your doctor studies in Germany. In Europe, I'm not sure. Um, I can, I can I can tell you about uh, Switzerland, of course, uh, which is um, very close to, to Germany, but has its own system. You could say it's a bit wealthier. Mm, maybe there are a bit more positions um, and usually they lack of their own people uh, keeping them in academia. So there's a lot of my academic migration from Germany to Switzerland actually. So I was part of this movement. <laughs>
0: Very interesting. And then so you spent two years in Zurich and then you went uh, back to Germany, to Freya and to the Weizenbaum Institute and worked for four years there as a postdoc. Um, you were were you part of the start of the Weizenbaum Institute? Were you at the very beginning? Yes,
1: I felt like in the startup. So there were there were like chairs and there were some desks. And after the second day there was internet. So really it was kind of a, this um the start of movies from the
0: 80s. And um people were fighting us, for. Tell us certain tell us because I know about the Weizemann because I was a visiting fellow there, but tell the audience a little bit more about the history and the aims of the Weizemann Institute and the role that you played um into making it uh you know reality, actually.
1: Mm-hmm. Well. The history was it was a policy project. So um, the ministry, the federal ministry of um, research and science, um, had this uh, idea to fund uh, and, and to, to yeah to fund an, an, an institute for internet studies of a German internet institute um, with a fifty million euro financing, which uh, back at time and I think. Yeah, uh, still now is uh, a very noteworthy sum to invest for social science um, and uh, uh, around internet research. So the idea um, of the Weizbaum Institute was to um, grasp several, uh, to be interdisciplinary at heart and to grasp some key aspects of Where the internet uh, and and, and internet use intersects with society, such as the use of Alexa and technological devices and privacy. So, this is, for example, an example where um, law people would meet with people from uh, information uh, and and informatics um, or communication, uh, where we closely worked with political scientists. Um, and develop ideas of public communication and democracy and digital citizenship. So um, quickly, we started having 20 research groups um, and this institute grew from one year to another, from one to let's say 150 uh, researchers, full researchers. Um, and yeah, growing um, is, is not always healthy, but it is um, fascinating to to observe. Uh, sometimes the pace was so high that I could not observe what was growing there. Um, I wish some people would have observed it closer, in order to make this healthy this this grow, growth even healthier. I don't criticize it, um, but I think this process could have been um, even improved with um, constant external. Um, um, audience, let's say so, but I was, it it was a fascinating time, and and I learned so much uh, about how to start, um, how to uh, plant a seed and see, or not really see it growing, because you're so close to the plant that you just see everything is green, so I was fascinating about um, about, uh, this possibilities that were out there,
0: It it, it was very unique, still is, and it was very revolutionary at the time. So, so having lived through it, and with some distance now, um, what are some lessons learned about how to build an academic institution that, uh, you know, do's and don'ts that you would take to, um, you know, your next initiative? Mm -hmm.
1: Great question. Uh, Well, um, what I think is um, this point of um, healthy growing of healthy growth um, I think this um, constant observation of evaluators from the very beginning would have um, been of um, yeah, of high profit for the for the institute. I think um, this idea of yeah playing and seeing what happens because we have the money to do so. Um, is great for being creative. But I think there has to be some institution that closely observes that growth um, is not um, a value by itself, but it has to be monitored by some external institution. So I would uh, recommend for the next uh, German Internet Institute kind of um, a close uh, monitoring. Um, And I mean... For example, I was, back at time, uh, I had so many ideas, was very ambitious, wrote a concept paper, wh- how I um, thought how the next years could look like, Had uh, ambitious, uh, very ambitious publication plans. Um, and I think a bit more of, um, also here, a bit more of kind of an regulative institution or instance, call it professor or some of an advisory board could have been helpful for having a bit more realistic plans and plans that are maybe meant very good and uh, want to find out a lot of things, but maybe also stress out a bit um, on the personal level. Because, I mean, back the time, I was team leader, group leader, and I think some of My emphasis and my enthusiasm, I could have needed a bit of a more of a counselor that could also stop me from realizing some ideas and expressing them even because back in the time, I had to do and and to work with young PhD students that, um, yeah, that there was the first building they saw in some of their academic, of their working lives, was the Weizmann Institute. So I, besides my academic responsibility, I had also kind of a personal responsibility that um, came with the job. I don't say that it was written in my contract, but came later with the job. And I think some of our of the enthusiasm that we had as being postdocs and research leads um, could have been a bit lowered in order to have more kind of healthy growth and steady growth.
0: Yeah. Very interesting. And so after four years at the Weizenbaum was a postdoc, um, you secured a professorship, a junior professorship um, at Heidelberg, and that professorship is focused on Ibero America, right? So the combination of Latin America and the Iberian Peninsula. How was that process, you know, from just the, the job search standpoint? But also up until that point, it seems to me that a whole lot of your work had been focused mostly on the German national context. And uh, you know, in the past couple of years, you have expanded that to Latin America and also Latino USA um, within those regions and also in comparison to Europe. So how has that intellectual transition, not only institutional transition, but also intellectual transition uh, been for you? And where do you see the field of, or the space of Latin America and Latino USA um in communication and media studies uh within the german context so three questions one
1: yeah okay i I try to answer them um i will start with the most easy one maybe the institutional um perspective and it is um i started of course as, as you have clearly said it i started with an let's say generalistic perspective on communication phenomena and concepts, uh, which I still do. Uh, I'm a generalist. I would consider myself as as being so. Um, but um, after my PhD, uh, my first uh, visit was Colombia. And I visited the Pontificia Javeriana University in Bogotá. Uh, where I spent four months uh, conducting research with um, the formerly mentioned Alcides Velasquez. Back at time, he was assistant professor there in communication. Um, so I had a wonderful time. And uh, for me, the idea of going to Bogota um, was to, yeah, to profit from my background. Because up to this point, I only profited from, let's say, so one side of my personal identity, which was the German academic system where everything is in German or in English. But um, my education is bicultural. So I was always curious about um, how I could develop myself uh, under conditions of Spanish-speaking or Latin American countries. And um, having the chance to be a regular participant um, uh, and, and present at the ICA, I got in contact with Alcides Velasquez. Uh, we kept contact, and after my PhD, uh, I know him from ICA in Phoenix, 2012, and uh, 2016 I went uh, to Bogota. So um, this, let's say, Latin American um, shift or turn in my career didn't come so super surprisingly, but it it was it, I wouldn't say it was prepared, but my curiosity was always there. For years, um, and the possibility to work with um, addressing some some of my let's say cultural heritage um, with my toolbox from communication was for me um, um, were two good reasons to apply for this position last year or uh, two years ago, which I then got uh, last year and Heidelberg as junior professor. Um, and intellectually, this is a more difficult question. Um, as I said, I'm, I am—I consider myself still a an generalist and wouldn't say that I'm just curious about now this macro region of Latin America and how communication unfolds there because my curiosity doesn't stop at borders. Sorry for being so uh, pathetic, but um, it, it is like this. I'm interested about how people communicate everywhere and anywhere um, and I think that concepts may should be discussed everywhere. Um, they may unfold differently, though, and I'm curious about those differences. That's why I'm conducting research, and um, I'm I'm not convinced um, about having to change all the conceptual language just because you cross a border. No, but I'm not convinced either that lightly adapting to the other country what you have just done in the other country, neither nor I think are good pathways to follow. I think this gray zone, um, this zone full of variations is the zone that we enter when we are really curious about what shapes our behavior and what shapes our attitudes and what role has communication. And today, what role has digital communication in uh, shaping both perspectives. Um, you had a third aspect which I now forgot.
0: <laughs> yeah, the third aspect is what is the place in your view of Latin America, and Latino USA, within the, the the conversation in the field in Germany, right? Um, and one could, you know, make it even more abstract and general. What is the place of Latinidad in the German imaginary? Mm. Um, it's
1: not in the communication discipline, definitely not in Germany. So to be very concrete, my professorship is the only one dealing with communication and Latin America in whole Germany. There are professorships on Latin America that mostly come from area studies um, or from sociology, most of them in Berlin, at Freie Universität, by coincidence. Um, But communication in Latin America is an intersection that is new. So I don't say that I will now define things and say, okay, that's how it should look like. I try my best to uh, study as accurate and appropriate as possible Latin America with the toolbox that I have. Um, But I think it deserves much more other perspectives and scholars uh, and women for sure as well to define uh, that field, that perspective from here to there. Um, What is of course possible is to get more contact and build more ties with aforementioned area studies uh, professors. They oftentimes have a bit of a different uh, perspective Um, I wouldn't say that I'm anti-critical studies, not at all, but mm, my criticism often begins with the evidence that I collect. So my first point of view when I look up a new communication phenomenon or a context is that I kind of detach from the reality as much as I can. And Of course, I think of power structures and dynamics and who is a player and who is a visual, the the visible actor who has voice and who is not. But I try to detach as much as I can and bring in the critical role just in the process of doing research. So I think um, getting more into contact with area studies is necessary, but is also a wide way for me at least to go. So I prefer to... Mm, let's say, yeah, to use a kind of a Trojan horse, (laughs) I will use this metaphor to uh, use my concepts and take examples and cases from Latin America inside this horse and um, present it to my usual suspects in Germany that from now on just cooperate with countries such as Australia, South Korea, the US, UK, but have nothing to do with Latin American and oftentimes ask me, why should I care about Latin America? That was one of the questions I had 2015 when I presented my first idea on a comparative project with Colombia. So to getting a bit rid of this, yeah, let's say disturbing reflexes, um, I came with this metaphor and this is not the end, but a step into um, getting more visible um, and, and getting Latin American context more relevant for communication star, uh, scholars here in Germany.
0: Very good. And now broadening the lens, so to speak, um, how do you see the conversations about, you know, Latin American media and communication or Latino USA included, um, or in addition to at ICA, not now in the German, uh, communication science context, but in international communities, since you've been going to ICA for quite some time and you know, um, and you've uh, observed the evolution of those conversations there, how would you characterize them?
1: I'm excited about the process that Latin American, uh, or the success that Latin American scholars have in our field, no, in our whole field, because my impression is that in the last years, especially scholars from Chile, um, are bringing excellent research on the table that cannot be regarded as being residual or let's say exotic cases, but not they are part of the mainstream discussions that we are now having in political communication. So they are driving forces. So I don't see that there are um, clear power centers in our field of communication anymore as it was maybe until the 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 year 2000s where i don't know in europe you had only amsterdam zurich and you had austin and you had um, i don't know pennsylvania and, and wisconsin medicine i think this um the visibility of excellent scholars became um became much more heterogeneous of course also by being shaped of this traditional university educations. So scholars as Sebastiani Venezuela, um, having PhD and, uh, in Austin, Asiris Velasquez, also MSU, um, and so on. I think um, going back to their countries, studying the case um, and bringing some such excellent research is a very um, convincing way to m- make our voices of Latin American researchers, but also the particularity of the cases there as being um, full of rich information for our theories. Take agenda setting, and again, as a case, I think he's one of the most innovative researchers in that traditional theory right now, but not in the US, but in Chile, which is, for me, one. one example of how um, um, we as Latin American researchers are, um, yeah, um, shaping the discipline.
0: Excellent, so so then to bring us to the conclusion of this conversation, building on this, if you had magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you would like the field of communication and media studies to change, what would you wish for?
1: of the problem with imagination is that if you have no experience before, you have limited imagination. And I have rarely experiences with, for example, African scholars. I just take it as one example. And I find this poor experience or this limited experience very dissatisfying. And I would like, if I would have this magical power, I would love to have the equal chance to meet an African or another scholar from the global south, than from the global north at conferences or to cite them with equal chance. That would be kind of my wish um, in order that our field becomes more inclusive. And although I appreciate that the ICA does a lot uh, and uh, the uh, journals in our field do a lot with their policies to improve inclusivity. I think that this problem is uh, very much systematic and would require magical powers to really improve.
0: All right, thank you very much, Pablo. This was a great answer and thank you so much for the fascinating conversation. I learned a lot uh, from it. So uh, thank you also to our listeners for staying with us to the end. And I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you again, Pablo.
1: Thank you, Pablo.
0: Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcicki, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mona Matassi.